This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 110. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. We have hockey news to discuss, sort of. Yeah, hockey is in the process of returning. Seems like they're going to do it, for real. And so, yeah, we have lines and scrimmages and practices. It's wild. Yeah, and actually, we should probably quickly comment. When the return to play was announced, we were both quite skeptical, I think. Um, yeah. And I think rightly so. I don't back off on being skeptical. I still am to a degree. Mm-hmm. But we've seen, I guess, some positive tests happen uh, so far. And they haven't gotten to the point where, where people are in the bubble yet. But thus far, there haven't been any major disasters. Yeah, knock on wood. I mean, I have to admit, and it's pretty rare that I find myself saying this, I think the NHL's return to play plan is way sounder than those of other leagues that I've seen, especially Major League Baseball. Because I have no idea what they're thinking in terms of having people flying all over the yeah, country. Yeah, for, for those who don't know, Major League Baseball was trying to have, like, basically teams, like, without fans, but teams, like, fly to each other's locales to play. Yeah. And the Canadian federal government just said they're not going to let this happen in Toronto. So the Blue Jays are kind of a homeless baseball club for this season. Yeah, and, and this is in spite of the fact that the Blue Jays said, like, oh, you know, when the other players are here, like, they cannot leave the footprint of the Rogers Center, yada, yada, yada. Um, mm-hmm. Like, they, they had plans for a pretty, what seemed on paper to be a rather airtight bubble, but the federal government still said no and it actually it passed municipal and provincial government like they okayed it but the federal government's like no we're not letting you do that yeah. which is interesting uh and i wonder if it's like a bit of kind of political distancing from the u.s mm-hmm. right because I, I wonder i don't know if it's any more or less safe than the nhl's assuming that the bubble is what they say it is which might be a bad assumption mm-hmm but I think optics-wise, it's a lot worse to say, oh, yeah, we're going to let these people from coronavirus hotspots travel and stay in, in travel to and stay in Toronto, um, even if they're they're in a bubble. Like, it, it still feels somewhat unjust, in a sense. Right. And, and the NHL, now the NHL has the advantage that they're only trying to run a playoff, whereas Major League Baseball is trying to run a half season. But... The NHL kind of has to get the bubble right and working at the start. And then it should, theoretically, be kind of set. Whereas the Major League Baseball stuff, with all of that traffic moving around the continent, you kind of need the bubble to work every time in each location. You know what I mean? Like, there's no centralization. There's constant travel. And it's like, as soon as you have one uh, hole in the bubble, so to speak... It seems like you're at a greater risk to spread it around. So, and also, the, there wasn't a. I don't believe there's a mandate on the MLB side that players sequester when they're in their home bases. Mm. So, so you know, you have a team in Arizona or whatever, right? Uh, and they're just going out doing their thing, and they come to Toronto. Like, it, it's a, it's a reasonable fear that they could they could spread it. And of yeah. course, no no bubble truly is impermeable, right? Because there's always going to be 
like support staff and whatnot unless you're mandating that they kind of completely lock down and then as soon as you know the players from another locale leave that those people who had those support staff and people local to toronto who may have interacted with them have to quarantine for 14 days like that's you're asking a lot at that point yeah yeah absolutely so I, you know this is a very qualified endorsement of what the nhl is doing to be clear but i will say it seems at least a little more credible to me and i think they're gonna put something on and i guess we'll see how it goes yeah we haven't seen any outbreaks yet we've seen i guess i said we've, we've seen positive tests but there are reports of positive tests passed right of course we saw it with austin matthews and he appears to have gotten over it he says with no ill effects as he was basically asymptomatic for the two weeks and then i assume he tested negative although i haven't seen that con- confirmed but I, mm. I assume i assume they tested him again i would hope so seems like an obvious thing to do but you never know um and then caleb jones of the oilers said the same that like he uh tested positive sequestered for 14 days um didn't really have any symptoms seems to be over it which is good yeah and so what the league has actually done is they've decided okay the only way we can preserve privacy in the matter of covid is to make every absence vague by just having the player declared unfit to play for any injury um that they may suffer or for covid so all absences are a little mysterious now and right now we're seeing teams come together in camps. We're seeing some changes in line combinations. There's a lot of uh, chatter right now about uh, Nick Robertson and his prospects of making the the Leafs lineup. And yeah, there were a couple of changes. The Leafs lineup that they're running right now is kind of boringly like you would expect it to be. Like, if you drew up what would be the conventional bog-standard lineup that Sheldon Keefe would lean on, it would be basically this at present. Yeah, with the exception of Andreas Janssen still not being present due to injury. Right. And it's unclear if and when he would come back. Yeah, I've heard something like second round, but I I have to say, I thought he would be back start of August, but maybe not. Doesn't look like it. So, yeah, right now we're looking at a top line of... Nylander, Matthews, and Hyman. I suppose I should say that's the more classic um, Leafs first line, the the one that kind of tore the world up under Mike Babcock once upon a time. Uh, Marner is back with John Tavares, and they're winged by the newly recovered Ilya Mikhaev. Uh, third line is Alexander Kerfoot, winged by Pierre Engvall on the left and Kasperi Kapanen on the right. And the fourth line is... Uh, star of our hearts, Freddie Goche, uh, winged by Kyle Clifford and Jason Spezza. March to 200 games played, baby. It's happening. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm, I'm, about, yeah. I'm disappointed because this, the, the, um, the first round, the play-in games, I suppose, are kind mm-hmm. of in this Schrodinger's playoff situation where it's both a playoff and not a playoff. It's right. a playoff for the teams, but the statistics are not neither regular season nor playoffs for the players. Which actually has implications for like bonuses and stuff. I'm not sure for anyone on the Leafs, but it actually the GMs are kind of having their cake and eating it too. Yeah, and on a related note, it means that the counting awards, as well as the voting awards, are already considered to be decided now. So the Rocket Richard is split between Ovechkin and Pasternak. 
uh, and Matthews is one back, for example, regardless of how much any of them score in the qualifying rounds or whatever else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the familiar lineup, yeah. I would say. There's a couple yeah. interesting things. The first mm-hmm. is the obvious, um, putting Matthews and Nylander and Tavares Marner back together. Right. When for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 games of the season, it was reversed. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder why that's happening, because we've talked about this before, and the, the amount of, I guess, digital ink and, I guess in our case, voices that have been spent about kind of debating which permutation in which to put four elite players is is kind of silly because <laughs> no matter how you look at it the conclusion is i mean they're all pretty good they all work they all work um mm-hmm. but it, it is interesting that they've gone back to you know old faithful in a sense um because keith has you know it, it wasn't it didn't take keith too long to switch things around with matthews and, and marner being put together and if you believe the rumors that's because matthews kind of wanted to play with marner and marner wanted to play with matthews and they're the two young cornerstones in a way that Nylander is not seen as, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, it is interesting to see that that's kind of the default. I imagine, as with a lot of the stuff we're going to discuss, this is very subject to change, right? And that's the thing with short series. You don't have a lot of time to make changes, but you will have to make them pretty quickly if you do decide to. Yeah, and you know, if Sheldon Keep decides, okay, I want a spark or I want to jumpstart something, he could just as easily flip Marner back, or he could try the supernova line of Nylander, Matthews, Marner, which didn't do as much as you'd kind of hope in a tiny sample, but who knows. Um, so yeah, that that's where it is right now. I'm wondering if John Tavares' line is once again going to be asked to do more defensive work or to do any kind of shutdown role. And Marner is probably a better defensive winger than Nylander. I think that's arguable, but I think there's a statistical case that says yeah, so. Yeah, I, I I would think so. I, I mean, mm. I don't think Nylander's as bad as some of his detractors are to say he is defensively, but I think Marner's above average defensively. Yeah, he's good at what he does. So, you know, if you're going to be throwing Tavares into the, the tough minutes against whoever is on Columbus. (laughs) You know what? I'm whistling past the graveyard here by saying they don't have enough scoring forwards because as you pointed out to me before we came on here, Cam Atkinson had 41 frigging goals last year. And Cam Atkinson is like, I don't know, in my mind, he's one of those guys who's like gritty and good and liked by coaches and scores 25 goals a year. Um, But yeah, so I guess... They do have a bit more offensive firepower than I realized. But, yeah, it's also a yeah. bit tough getting a read on their lines because they were so injured that right. there was a lot of shifting around. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there's a lot of shifting around with their with their lines this year. So mm-hmm. we'll, at some point, we'll, we'll try and talk to a Columbus expert to get a sense of you know what they're, what they're going to be about. And we can do a more in-depth review. We'll talk about them in some detail today, but we'll also you know go more in-depth on them later. But yeah, that's, that's the... the tricky thing when evaluating them like you look at their hockey viz page and you see the amount of forwards they've used they've it looks like they have two rosters yeah they went through everybody and they are getting some people back uh most prominently oliver bjorkstrand who is like a legit scoring winger at last report and i'm going off you know what i'm able to look up 
here. They're putting him on the top line with Pierre-Luc Dubois. We will see if that persists. And then the second line is Gustav Nyquist, Alexander Wenberg, and Cam Atkinson. I have to admit, like, as much as Columbus frightens me because they're gritty and they play exactly the kind of game that seems like it could give the Leafs hell, and of course they bumped off Tampa, who were like the Super Leafs last year in the playoffs, you look at this forward lineup and it's like, it's not very good offensively. Like, I'm sorry, but they don't have a lot of good scoring players. Um, and Cam Atkinson, who I just mentioned, I mean, he does no longer have Artemi Panarin to set him up. So, yeah, if you compare the Leafs forward lines to the Columbus forward lines, you would think that the Leafs have a very strong advantage, and they should. It's just a question of can they, you know, can Columbus muck the game up, slow it down, uh, run their 1-2-2 that makes it really tough to get through the neutral zone with any kind of speed. In which case, that turns it into kind of a grind fest, which is not how the Leafs like to play. Right. Um, yeah, there's... We, we can talk a little bit about that now. We, I think one of the reasons that there's such fear is that, you know, we talk about the Leafs forwards and they look good and they look as we expect. And then, you know, your your attention turns to the Leafs defensemen. Ah, yes. We have those also. Yes. And, <laughs> I mean, that's also kind of the line combinations that we came to expect. Riley Cece, Muzzin Hall, Dermot Berry, Sandin Mernson seem to be the sparish so far. Um, now, at... The thing is, with, with Sandin, Sandine, sorry, it's been so long that I've forgotten how to pronounce his name. With Sandine and Marinson, um, the depth is, is fine, really. Like, if this is a point that Kevin made, Kevin Papetti made on Twitter, that, you know, you look at the recent cup champions and teams that go far, they don't use 12 forwards in the playoffs. Things happen, right? People shift in and out of the lineup. And the same is probably true with defensemen. We're probably not going to use the same six the entire way through if we make uh, a run. But I'm not worried about Sandine and Marinson coming in on the back end for anyone besides really Muzzin and Riley. Yeah. Like, if you put that in as a third pair, it's fine. Like, that can be an NHL third pairing. And I know that I'm inviting Martin Marinson just lobbing a grenade right into his own slot at some point. But Sandine and Marinson is fine. It's just, we're playing Cody Ceci on our top pair, and that hurts my feelings. Mm. It's, it's not good that that's happening to us i actually get it is the sad thing because it's like it's not like the rasmus ristolainen thing where you're like maybe he should just not be played like this anymore with the leafs lineup you have muzzin hole who have against all odds turned into like a kind of passable 1b ish pairing it's like a quasi a quasi decent pairing we, we could they not have... possibly be qualifying this more. Yeah, I I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that a real team should be playing Muzzin Hall as a shutdown pairing, but here we are. We do not have a great defense group. So this is the deal. And you know what? And they've their results have been quite respectable. Okay. And then you have Riley, who's obviously going to anchor the other top four pairing. And you have to decide who to put with him. And... You can put Tyson Berry, who does not understand defense on a conceptual level. Um, you can put Travis Dermott, which would be playing him on his offside and also raising him to a higher level of competition than he's done 
for most of his NHL career. They did he try did... that in practice, right? At, at some point. Yeah. yeah I remember mm-hmm. Keith mentioning it, but yeah, I, I, it would be a hell of a time to, to break that out. Yeah. Welcome to the show, kid. Uh, and then that leaves you with Cody Cece. Now, I mean, it has to be said, Cody Cece's results this year have been fine. They haven't been great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I think he's good, but he's survived. And at this point, I guess we're going with, okay, he can go there, hopefully not trip over his own skates, and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll get by. I do note something that Katja pointed out is that Cody Cece is not going to overhandle the puck um, if he can avoid it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. And so if you're playing Riley Cece behind, say, the Matthews line, it will be Riley and the three forwards who do most of the, the puck handling. And everyone would agree Cody Cece should not have it most of the time. And Cody Cece would agree with that. He would just as soon give it to the other players on the ice. So in that sense... It sort of makes sense. I don't think that this is, again, a good outcome. But this is what we have to live with. If you want to, you know, point to the weakness among the Leafs skaters, uh, you know, the fact that we're playing Cody CC top pair is easily the most prominent one. It is worth noting that, you know, okay, single season metrics of, you know, uh, play driving are wonky and they can be wonky um mm-hmm. cody cc you know with that caveat aside cody cc this year is seen as a good defensive player by both hockey viz's isolated uh, xg impact and by evolving hockey's uh xg or, or apm he he sewers the offense more than he helps the defense but he does help the defense and if if you say okay you know we can accept that trade-off more than tyson berry doing the reverse on the top pair then that's something. And, and it's worth saying that CC has done this mostly while playing kind of top four minutes. Yeah. I, I mean, we said, look, he has to look better than he did in Ottawa because in Ottawa, he was basically tied to an anvil and thrown in the lake. Like he, he was in such an impossible position to succeed there. And so we said, okay, he'll probably be better. He has to be better. And, you know, it's been fine. Like, if if the Leafs were to, say, bring back Cody CC on, like, a cheapy deal, I would get it. I don't think they will. And I think Cody CC will still probably command a non-trivial amount of money. And so I wouldn't want to give him that. But, like, I guess Cal Dubas can kind of claim a partial vindication on this one. I, I mean, the trade made sense regardless and you know uh, we're benefiting from not having Nikita Zaitsev so you know what like it's fine you can tell I am kind of going through a personal therapy session with adapting to Cody CC (laughs) Um, yeah I mean with with CC it's also interesting because even before he got injured he wasn't playing with with Riley when uh, under Keefe right Uh, he moved away from that and he was playing with Travis Dermott for a bit and then with Sandine for a bit. And his, mm-hmm. his minutes had, had gone down a little bit as the year progressed as well. So to see him kind of... Kind, to see the least kind of reverting to the Babcock lines effectively is a little unusual. But you look at the options and, and there isn't a whole lot there. So 
you yeah. know, Keefe doesn't have a lot of levers to push here. Um, now, saying that, was I made to feel more comfortable by this position from the highlights of the scrimmage that came out that seemingly showed, you know, Team Austin Matthews, which is basically the team with all the forwards on it, getting breakaways apparently at will? Mm-hmm. No, I was not. That was disconcerting. <laughs> I mean... If you had told me going in, we're going to do a scrimmage and we're going to put all the good forwards on one team and the defense on the other team. I like how you say all I, the good defensemen on the other team. You you don't the, say that. Rather. Yeah, the adjective has been omitted on purpose, I assure <laughs> you. And so I would probably say that that was not going to end well for Team B, wouldn't you? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and Lowe, it did not. Um, now, granted, Nick Robertson has been kind of shuffling in and out here. He was actually on the top. Uh, line recently filling in for Zach Hyman because Zach Hyman was away temporarily. Hyman is skating this morning, actually, as we record. So all we know is that he was unfit to play, but hopefully he'll be all right. Um, and so Robertson has been playing like someone who wants to come in and steal a job as well. He should. He's, he's a spark plug. He has a lot of energy. He goes 150% pretty much every opportunity he gets. And so you would expect that having a player like that in uh, on a prominent forward line against defensemen who kind of know that they're going to be there and who are just trying to get up to speed, Robertson has a bit of training camp magic to him, right? Where it's the players who are on the bubble who put in the best performances, whereas the other players are just kind of saying, okay, I just want to get back in shape and not get injured. So... Yeah, I'm trying to hand wave away some of the, the defense showings, but, you know, it's not great. <laughs> yeah, and also I think the, the looming over all of this, as it does with any hockey series, is the goalie. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> and, I, I mean, we've concerned. talked about this on the pod before. I, Frederick Anderson just didn't have a good year, right? No, he didn't. Um, and the Columbus guys, people have, I think, overstated the degree to which Columbus was propped up by goaltending. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you when you look at all situation save percentage, it looks like they have because they got these random guys who put up 920s. Yeah. But when you look into the publicly available, you know, stats we have, which are not perfect, but the best that we can do in terms of assessing goaltender performance, accounting for shot quality, the Columbus journeymen look like journeymen. They don't look mm-hmm. amazing, right? And it's their team defense, really, that has made those goaltenders look stronger than they probably are. Right. And, and so that's yeah. not something the Leafs can really claim that they all have the ability to do. Like, propping, as bad as Anderson has been, the Leafs are not a team that can survive by propping up a goaltender who isn't doing well because just they're, they're, they're we're not a very good defensive team right? We've gotten better. We're no longer catastrophic, but we're Mm. still not a good defensive team by any means. Right. So, yeah, I mean, what you get with the Leafs is you have a chance to win despite allowing three or four goals, hopefully. But, yeah, it's it's tough. Anderson, you know, you can't read too much into scrimmage showings, and so I'm going to try not to. I can't say I feel great about Freddie Anderson with the year that he's had. If he isn't playing at his conventional higher level, uh, then the Leafs are probably dead. But 
that's goaltending for you, you know? Yeah, pretty much. It's it's not... I mean, this is something that Alan pointed out as well at Loser Points. Um, uh, former managing editor of Raw Charge and Lightning uh, Twitter follow. When we were talking to him about Columbus, you know, he was pointing out some of the stuff stylistically that Columbus did to, to hurt Tampa. But he also made the point where it's like, look, if we're being completely honest about it, at the end of the day, Bobrovsky played well and Vasilevsky put up an 880. And then, like... You know, you can retrofit all the other narratives, but it starts from that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's the amount of... The, if you go into a series and, you, and you're and you told your goaltenders put up an 880, the probability of you winning that series is like 20%, I'm sure, or less. Yeah, you're probably screwed. And, you know, if we're being honest, last year... Not to uh, to bring this up again, but I think the Leafs were better than Boston, at least at even strength last year. They had a case for being the better team, but Anderson didn't play very well. And they kind of fizzled out. Now, the Leafs also had a, a brutal penalty-killing problem. But, yeah, you, you know, sometimes that's just how it goes. And it, it does kind of make you feel like all analysis has to end with a shrug because goaltending will outweigh all the other factors um, if it's very good or very bad. So, yeah, I mean, with that hanging over us, we can look at these lines and say, okay, this team is good. You know, this is the, they're the same team that we know and intermittently love and hate. And... I can't say I expect Nick Robertson to make the Game 1 lineup. I don't think that that's likely to happen. The lines, as constituted, don't seem to have him in there. It's hard to make a jump from junior to the NHL at, like, 19 years old. Um, actually, he's not even 19 yet. He'll be 19 in September. Yeah. So, man. Like, and, like that's in no way a knock on him. He's had a phenomenal... Uh, draft plus one season it's just it's quite the fire to be throwing him into now the number of non-first rounders who get games as an 18 year old and aren't horrifically bad is really really small really small. oh yeah yeah tiny 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 um so yeah i i mean it's very much a wait and see i know everyone is very excited about nick robertson and as well they should be and I'm not saying that he won't get in at some point necessarily. As you know, we mentioned Kevin said, if you make a run, you probably use 15 forwards in the course of the playoffs. And Kevin pointed out, Nick Robertson is probably one of the best 15 forwards on this team. Um, I mean, I would argue if it was if it was me playing, I, I guess I wish we had a chance to to see him in games that mattered less. But I have a hard time believing that he wouldn't add more than Freddie Gauthier. I mean, yeah. And I know... Like, does Freddie Gauthier do? And, like, yeah, and I know. I know that <laughs> um, there's concerns about Spezza being able to play center with the intensity of a playoff series. Maybe you have to put Engvall there and you put Robertson uh, on the wing, maybe third line, left wing. And then that can be tricky because that line is also going to be trusted defensively. And, you know, do you trust an 18-year-old rookie in the playoffs defensively? I don't know. But... Gauthier, like the basically the best case scenario for Gauthier is that you don't notice him, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
which is not to say he has no use as an NHL player. He, you know, kind of suppresses everything on both ends, right? Not a lot of offense, not a lot of defense. Mm-hmm. Or, um, or sorry, not a lot of offense for either team, rather, I should say. Yeah. But Robertson has certainly a way bigger chance to be a difference maker, especially if you put him on the power play, right? Because the thing that I'm not concerned about translating is the shot. Yeah. I think Nick Robertson is going to be able to score goals in the NHL. Like, Probably right now, but certainly very soon. Like, that that skill set is pretty well developed already. Um, so, yeah, it just comes to a question of, do you want him in all the situations? Sheldon Keefe has been talking a lot like this is going to be a good learning experience for him. You know, he'll get up, he'll breathe the NHL air a little bit, um, and then maybe next year he's ready to seriously contend for an NHL job. But, yeah, I, I mean, Freddie Goche, let's be honest, his, his job is, like, the most basic of fourth-line jobs, which is just, you know, give us a couple of minutes where we can rest our star players and don't totally implode. And the highest compliment I can play to Freddie Goche's game is that he can probably do that. And that's it. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing that does concern me a little bit about that fourth line, it's a pretty slow fourth line. You know, we, we yeah. talk about the Leafs as a very fast <laughs> team, and by and large, they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they have some speedsters on every line. Although, I'd, I'd say that, you know, the Mikheyev-Tavares-Marner line isn't incredibly fast either, right? Uh, Tavares is not a burner by any means. Marner is more agile than straight line fast. Mikheyev mm-hmm. has has some wheels, but... I don't think he's in like the top twenty percent of the league in terms of speed. Um, no, but that fourth line is like just undoubtedly slow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a the question of like, what are you going to do with that line? Like, send them out for a defensive zone face-off when hopefully, you know, they're not staring down the Dubois line or something like that, and get the puck out and go off. You know, it, it's uh, it's limited. Now, granted. Most teams don't have the greatest four lines. Um, right, and if we're saying this about our fourth line, imagine what Columbus is saying about theirs. Yeah, I mean, they do have Riley Nash, who is, like, someone that I've heard of. That's <laughs> their fourth line center, so good for them. I don't know. I mean, the question is, what do you think of the team defense um, on Columbus's end? And, you know, they do have Zach Wierenski and Seth Jones who are both considered quite high-level defensemen. We've talked a bit about Seth Jones before, where the stat profile doesn't necessarily back up that opinion. But yeah, I mean, this is a better defensive team than the Leafs. It's going to come down to their ability to dictate the play, and they did that quite successfully against Tampa. And so the Leafs are going to have to be prepared for that. You know, the the possession-heavy style of hockey that they've pursued under Sheldon Keefe, we're going to find out if they can make that work or if Columbus is able to disrupt that. Uh, worth noting, this is happening mm-hmm. pretty close to live. Um, Columbus just tweeted a roster update where they've added Josh Anderson to the club's 34-man roster. He has joined mm. the club in Columbus and continues to rehab after undergoing shoulder surgery in March. So I guess they wouldn't do that if there wasn't a chance he could play, I don't think. Um, I don't remember the rules around the roster but like 
is does this mean that he if he was going to play at any point in the playoffs where they make it a run does that mean he had to be added now or could he have been added later i think they have to add them soon you know like you have to set up the bubble and stuff yeah. like that so, so but okay so, I, I think they're anticipating it yeah so there's some there there's some chance that he'll play in general and that of course could come against the Leafs. I haven't seen a specific timeline that says you know whether he'll be healthy or not for a first round series against the Leafs, but he would definitely help Columbus's chances. He's a good player. Yeah, he probably adds some real moxie to their top, top six. He, he scored like a hat trick against us this this year, didn't he? Or something like like that. You could name any forward and be like this he scored a hat trick against us and I'd be like, "Yeah, probably." It just felt like that kind of year, you know? Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... If he did, it wasn't this year. I just checked. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I feel like he's... I feel like he scored against us before. Which is not saying a lot. <laughs> but... Yeah. Doesn't everybody? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I The biggest thing is that you look at... We talked about Alexander Wenberg as one of the worst under 30 contracts last episode. Mm-hmm. And he's their second-line center at present. Yeah. Um... You know, presumably, <laughs> the line with John Tavares and Mitch Marner on it, which is our supposed second line-ish, that ought to be better. Even if you, you know, you account for Gustav Nyquist being on the left wing, who is a, he's a good winger. But, yeah, I, like, what this all boils down to, it, it was what everyone has been saying, is that Columbus is a good defensive team. They're structured. John Tortorella has had them playing probably above what a lot of us thought their level would be, especially this year, after they lost Artemi Panarin. But the Leafs should be a better team. Right. And it becomes a question of, is there like a style counter here, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because, so uh, there's a couple things that are informing kind of my trepidation about this from a style perspective. The first is um, an article that that Justin Bourne uh, put out recently, where... Columbus is a rather good cycle team offensively, I believe is what it is. I'm doing this from memory, but the Leafs are quite bad defensively on the cycle, which which I think we would all kind of agree with. Yep. And, you know, if Columbus, who are great four-checkers, are able to pin the Leafs in their own zone, it's going to spell uh, trouble for us because the way we defend is by possessing the puck in the offensive zone, right? That's kind of the benefit of... Keith's offensive system with the third forward high, it, it's an outlet to retain possession. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if Columbus, who can manage that, and they, they managed that to some degree against Tampa last year, right? That puts them in, in a good spot. And, and we had a conversation with Alan about this, and the way he kind of described it, it was, it was that Columbus essentially takes, their style kind of grinds the game to a halt, and takes what should be a 60-40 series by talent and turns it into a forty-five, a 55-45 series, right? And then they've given themselves a chance. Right. And so Columbus, despite being at what I think most people would agree is a talent deficit, against Tampa it was a very pronounced talent deficit, they are able to win games that they seem like they probably shouldn't win because yeah, they turn everything into kind of a coin flip ish proposition. And that's probably a smart way to play, especially when you don't have that much going for you on the forward end. It makes a lot of sense. And I do remember Alan saying, and this is 
the part that really is going to scare you is that he was he kept saying to himself okay at some point talent has to win out like it has to start showing that tampa is orders of magnitude more skilled than these guys and it just didn't happen and they were out in no time i i do also think that there was a bit of a psychological component there where tampa kind of got punched in the mouth and they didn't really recover in time to salvage the series you know like it was over so quickly for them i think they were kind of shell-shocked i'm hoping that doesn't befall the leafs you know i'm getting dangerously close to just saying oh the first game is a big one yeah no shit you know you have to win three if you win one that's good <laughs> yeah and but, you know getting dangerously yeah. close to the psychoanalysis that we try and avoid but mm-hmm. you would think that because of last year no one is overlooking columbus no and uh i the, the leafs no one should overlook anyone in the playoff series, but like the Leafs have certainly not earned the right to overlook anybody. No, right? absolutely. And but yeah. we've seen before that the Leafs for a team that has not done a lot, they they do have a bit of a hubris about them. It can feel that way, you know, cuz they're supposed to be better than this. Yes, exactly. I mean, there there was there was some talk I think on PPP this year or like recently where in the comment section, I mean, where someone's saying, you know, I think we can be contenders next year. And you pointed out, we were supposed to be contenders this year. Yeah. And, like, next year is probably going to be close to the same team. So, barring, you know, massive internal improvements, and I guess that's mostly coming from Rasmus Sandin and then maybe Nick Robertson. Like, this is it. This is the team that we got. It's going to be a relatively flat cap for the next few years. We got to kind of see it now. Yeah, and now, this is I, I, yeah. the style. Like, we've we've doubled and tripled down on the style at this point, right? It's, it's yeah. <laughs> you know, come hell or high water, it's going to be a bit of a glass cannon, and we're going to hope that the offense outweighs the defense. Yeah, and, you know, if you want to look at the absolute brightest possible side, you can say that between Sheldon Keefe coming in and our defense core getting destroyed by injuries, the Leafs looked at times like a genuine contender. But, you know, that runs the risk of saying, okay, they were really good for six weeks. Lots of teams are really good for six weeks. So there's really no excuse for not coming in at a high level of play. Like, after everything that's been invested in this team, they've had a month to prepare. They're against an opponent that is good and that is intimidating and that is a good stylistic match to get the Leafs fits. But it's like... I have to admit, as much as I've been saying all this stuff, I can't hide a certain amount of frustration where it's like, okay, but, like, it's fucking Columbus. Right. As much as as much respect as we're giving Columbus, and they deserve it for being, you know, a good, yeah. a good team. They are a genuinely good team. You know, we talk about the Leafs injuries. Columbus was one of the two teams that got absolutely murdered by injuries this year, along with Pittsburgh. Right? They're, mm-hmm. they're a good team, and they're better than they showed in the regular season because, you know, if they're actually healthy— they will be playing better talent. But, like you said, it's Columbus. Columbus is not a team that is some insurmountable object, right? Like, they, they have one fewer point than the Leafs or something like that, right? Like, they're, they're not the 2002 Red Wings. So, yeah, we yeah. can respect them, of course. We should, and the Leafs should, and I'm sure they are. But this... There's not... If, if, if the Leafs lose... 
mm-hmm. it can't be, well, that was a tough matchup. Because Columbus, as good as they are, probably top out as a good, not great team. Yeah. So if you're saying, oh, you know, a, a good, not great team is a tough matchup, well, then I think you just face the reality that you're not that good. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's not to say that the Leafs can't be the better team and lose, especially in a best of five, because, of course, they can. But the Leafs should come out and be the better team, skating-wise. And I will say, drawing Boston the first round a couple of years, and this sounds like excuse-making, that is really tough. Boston is probably a top-three team in the NHL. And while it's become popular to dunk on Leaf fans for getting to carry away for just taking Boston to seven in the first round... That's not necessarily an indictment of the quality of the team. But, like, you got to take care of business against a team that is playing Alexander Wenberg at second-line center. You just got to. You got to at least look like the second-best, like like a real team. Like the best team on the ice, so. Yeah. I mean, having worked through some, like, anxieties and stuff about Columbus... I'm still coming around like, okay, if you name the best players in this series, you name a lot more Leafs than you do Blue Jackets. That's just a fact. So, yeah, uh, I guess we'll see how this one plays out, but it's going to be tough. It's a tricky matchup, and it's one that they have to take seriously. The Leafs should win this. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yes, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of a nice way to summarize that, but I think I think you did a very good job of that there. Like, the, There's no real excuses besides the obvious, like, you know, it's playoff hockey. And that's true, right? And, you know, I, I think we try and avoid the idea of if they don't win this, then, you know, they should do X, Y, Z, because the reality is when you're talking about a maximum of five games, stupid things happen, mm-hmm. right? A, a lot more teams have been ruined than saved by overreacting to a playoff series. Right. But as you said, like, if, if the Leafs aren't the better team in this series in terms of carrying play at 5-on-5, five five, that's a problem, right? Columbus is a good mm-hmm. defensive team. Guess what? If you want to be a contender, you have to face good defensive teams and make them not very good defensively. Yeah. And, like, you know, we're paying $40 million to our star forwards who score. That is what they are for. That is why they are paid as well as they are breakthrough you know and and i will say i wrote um we just finished our top 25 under 25 if you want to look at uh the younger players in leafs organization and of course austin matthews was number one and he really did have an exceptional year so if you want to uh to look at the reasons why the leafs should beat columbus you can look at his performance this year and say okay he's showing as a bona fide fringe heart trophy candidate and Again, Columbus doesn't have anyone on that level, so... No, yeah. the guy who, I guess in both of our opinions, should win the heart, left them last year, right? And that's a, <clears throat> that's a huge loss. Yes, right? yes and indeed. So, you know, we're, we're harping on this a lot, but it, it's... As much as kind of mainstream media analysis can be a little bit lazy and reductive, the idea of Columbus as a scrappy, disciplined, you know, rough, gritty, I hate to use that word... Um, team that doesn't have elite offensive talent but executes the game plan very well and frustrates teams that's i think pretty bang on yep that's what they are right it's not like they're a bunch of guys holding their sticks upside down you know they, they have guys who no. can hurt you with skill mm-hmm. but not to the degree of you know the true top teams in the league 
and not to the degree of a team like the Leafs, who aren't a true top team in the league, but have, you know, that elite skill that can break open a game out of nothing, right? Um, so, yeah, that that's where they, they fall short. Mm-hmm. The Leafs have to have to make that count. Um, yeah. Special teams could be quite important, as it can be in any series. The Leafs, I'm glad that they're riding their power play, their top power play a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you're, you know, you're, you're paying $40 million to these four stars. Get the most out of them. Yeah. Right? Start yeah, playing absolutely. them. Especially now. Like, I think there's an argument to not do that in the regular season, especially if you're comfortable. You don't want to put unnecessary miles on these guys. But, you know, every game matters at this point. Start riding them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is it. They're there to win you the hockey game. And you need to win this one as much as anything. And so, yeah, this, this is a big deal. As much as that, this is a weird playoff. This is a strange team. And there will be you know, a plethora of available excuses. If they do lose to Columbus, they'll say, oh, it was such a long layoff and a weird year and Sheldon Keefe only had half a season and all that stuff. But this core has to do something in the next couple of years because it's not really possible to add to them under a flat cap except through phenomenal draft hits. And so, if this group can't get it done, there's not going to be a great opportunity to supplement them in the next couple of seasons. Kyle Dubas will be kind of faced with the choice of hammering over and over again with the same group, or blowing it up, or at least dealing out from it, which is not something that I think any of us want to see. You know, we talked about the risks of trading away big talent uh, a few podcasts back. But yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line on this series is like, go out and play better than the Columbus Blue Jackets. I like, I, I don't want to hear all this stuff about like, oh, it's very tough and, you know, they're great defensively. Too bad. You're a contender. You got to act like it. Yep. So, pretty much. Um, I, Stern dad podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're not mad. We're just very disappointed that you guys embarrassingly <laughs> lost to Columbus and made our escapism from a pretty shitty world a lot more shitty. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, was there anything else we wanted to discuss this week? Uh, there, I guess we can talk a bit about the wrapped up top 25 under 25. Um, you kind of alluded yeah. to uh, Nick Robertson and kind of the hype around him right now and whether, you know, to as, as we usually do, we, we like to, you know, shit on everyone's parades <laughs> and give a slower <laughs> roll, right? Where, you know, he looks great in, in training camp. He should because he's mm-hmm. obviously going to be going 100%, and these other guys are just trying not to get hurt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think there is a lot of optimism around Robertson, and, and rightfully so. When it comes to the Leafs' prospects, and by taking a liberal term of the of the word, uh, or sorry, a liberal definition of the word prospect, to mean just someone who isn't a very established NHLer, it's basically between Robertson and Sandine for who is going to be, who, who you'd consider the Leafs' best prospect. So mm-hmm. how did you grade the two when you were voting in the top 25? And I guess, how do you, do you think there's any possibility that they can usurp any of the Leafs' kind of big three in terms of value? I would consider it exceptionally unlikely. It's possible, but it's really, really unlikely. Uh, I had Sandine ahead of Robertson on my ranking just because I think Rasmus Sandine is with a very high level of certainty, going to be at least a second-pairing NHL defenseman in his career. 
Like, I think that that's very close to being within his grasp. He's on the doorstep of doing it now. Right now, he's like a decent third pair defenseman at a quite young age. And so I value that quite highly. Like, even if he just hits that um, outcome and that's it, that's still pretty good. We don't have <laughs> enough uh, good second pair defensemen, as I alluded to with uh, the whole Cody Cece thing. Nick Robertson, I think you can say he does have a glimmer of genuine star potential, though. And I'm not saying I would necessarily bet on him being like a star player, and I'm not betting on him being as good as, say, William Nylander, who I think is, you know, an exceptional player. But he could be very, very good. I just am not confident enough in that being his kind of median outcome to rank him above Sandine right now when Sandine is so close to the to a high level. Yeah, I I can see that point. I, I value Robertson's upside more highly, right? I, I think mm-hmm. goal scoring is, is the hardest thing to do at the NHL level, and I'm about as confident as I can be in any prospect, any non-elite you know elite superstar prospect that... Um, Robertson will be able to score goals when he gets to the NHL. So that was kind of my thinking on putting Robertson ahead of Sandine. I, I agree with you, I think, uh, on the probability of any of them usurping Nylander or Marner in terms of their value as a player. It's very, very unlikely, simply because, mm-hmm. you know, if you, let's say you rank Nylander in the, in the top 50 NHL players. Well, there's only 49 places ahead of them. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's it's so. just there's not a lot of room to uh, to to be above someone like Nylander, and I think we both agree that Marner's probably slightly better. Um, right. That was another kind of interesting thing to look at in the voting this year. Uh, how close the race between Nylander and Marner was. I think Marner won it by like everyone voted them either two or three, and I think if like two more people had switched Marner to three and put Nylander to two, they would have tied again. So it wasn't a huge margin. Yeah, I was surprised it was that close. Me too. Honestly. Me too. Yeah. Um, and I think, to be clear, I don't think the gap between them is very big. I've always thought that the two of them were close. And I think that uh, after Nylander having a, a brutal down year last year that was fractured by you know his contract dispute and Marner having an exceptional year production-wise, I think that made the gap between them seem a lot larger than it actually is. But at the same time, I do think Marner is probably a cut above. It's interesting statistically because Marner, as we've referenced before on this podcast, doesn't necessarily have the elite stat profile you might be hoping for. Uh, because I don't think that a lot of our models, which are all still based on shot data, I don't think they always capture his playmaking ability. But yeah, I would. I think that Marner is probably a step ahead right now. Yeah. Um, the, the, I think one thing people forget is that Marner is also a year younger. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's still relevant. Yeah. I mean, when you're 23 versus 24, it, it's, it's not as huge a difference as when you're 19 versus 20, but mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that either of them have untapped potential, Marner probably has a bit more. Um, so much of this is going to depend on whether Nylander shooting is for real. Right. And I guess I've right. harped on this, basically for every year of his career, but for someone who has such a superficially good shot in the first three years of Nylander's career, it wasn't very effective, mm-hmm. right, in, in terms of actually going it. Um, this year, that changed. He's become one of the league's more effective shooters, which 
you know, there's two ways of looking at that. He, either he's improved his shooting, or he's gotten very lucky. And, I mean, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But that is what will kind of determine whether he is merely a good first-line winger, or if he can kind of break into that really, really elite class. And if, if his shooting this year is legit, then I think there's an argument that he is as good as Marner. Yeah, because, I mean, if he can be a, like a 35-goal man, and Marner, it has to be said, his shot is never going to be a strong point for him. Um, yeah, then I, I think you can say Nylander is in that conversation, you know, as a, like a 30-35 goal, 70-point kind of player, and one with great transition ability who clearly drives play. Um, at the same time, I do think that Marner is exceptional offensively. Yeah, no, he, so, he absolutely yeah. is. I, th- I think Marner is about as good as you can be offensively without without being a great shooting threat, right? And and it's kind yeah. of in the, in the Joe Thornton style, mm-hmm. right? You have to be really a sublime playmaker to pull that off, and, and he is. He's an unbelievable passer. I, I think Nylander's a very good passer, but Marner, mm-hmm. you know, he's one of the, I think, five best passers in the world. He's unbelievable. Yeah, and, you know, his ability to move laterally his agility where he can kind of open up a passing lane for himself and then exploit it um that's a very special skill to be able to do it at his high level um i do think that there is some frustration in the fan base with marner you know he believes that he's and you know an elite elite player which which he is he kind of wanted the matthews contract which he didn't really deserve because Matthews is definitely still a cut above him and he's overpaid. Like I think that there's a gap between Marner and Nylander. It's not $4 million a year. So I do wonder if maybe that influenced people a little bit where I think Nylander is clearly on a more valuable contract because Marner's is so enormous. But in terms of actual comparisonism as players, I still give Marner the edge. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I think the other thing with, with Marner, and part of the reason he was frustrating to some this year, is he would have these games where he was anonymous for 85% of the game. And then he'd make like a nice pass to someone and they'd finish and he'd get a primary assist. Mm-hmm. And like that that's kind of the Mitch Marner experience at times. Right? Where Yeah, he can seem invisible. Um, and I, you know, that's not necessarily fair. And I know that People applied that to Nylander, but I gotta say, I don't get that experience with Nylander at all. No, I, I think Nylander, I mean, he obviously has bad games, but oh, yeah, because yeah. of his puck handling ability, even in most of his kind of games where he doesn't show up offensively or on the score sheet, he's still kind of an active contributor to transition. Marner's no slouch in that respect, but he's not in Nylander's class as, as a play driver, I don't, or at least yeah. like as a puck carrier. And Marner's also, because he's not that much of a shooter, Right, and by that I mean he doesn't shoot very effectively. For for a guy who doesn't have a great shot, Marner actually shoots a decent amount, but you know it, it, they're not often really strong or impressive looking shots. When Marner has a bad game, he can really seem invisible because it's just passes that are not quite connecting, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that frustration, along with the contract stuff, has resulted in people I think being a bit more down on him than they should be, especially with regards to his season, because I think he he has genuinely had a very good season. Um, 
one thing I will say, I, I saw some comments uh, on PvP again of like, you know, Marner should, you know, try and work on a shot, try and train it with someone like Matthews, with those elite shooters to see if he can improve it. And I think one thing maybe people don't appreciate is that, you know, you could work on it all you want. There's no guarantee of it improving to the degree that, you know, he's never going to have an Austin Matthews shot. Right? Like, I think Austin Matthews is the best dollar run shooter on the planet. Yeah, and like, so. <laughs> and, and some people just won't be able to generate, like, just don't have the ability to shoot at a high level in the NHL, right? And mm-hmm. it, it, like, you can work on it all you want. I'm sure Marner has worked on a shot, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Mitch Marner has been training since he was four years old to be an NHL hockey player. I'm sure at some point he was like, man, I should work on my shot. Yeah, and to be clear, he still finishes on his shots on goal at like a 10-11% rate, yeah. which is fine. Mostly because um, he takes advantage of opportunities when they do come to him opened up by his passing. He's just not an exceptional shooter. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's how it is. And you know what? If he's like a, a guy who's mostly going to be 20-25 goals a year, um, but has a whack of assists, that's cool too. You know? Yeah. Uh, I think, as you said, you know, he should work on it as best as he can. I'm sure he does. It's just... The thing is, is that, like, I do think sometimes when we project growth, we sort of just view it as, like, it's just like there are levels and you just pass them. When it's like, you're in a league against 700 guys who are all at the top of the profession and who are all trying to get better. You know, (laughs) like... At a certain point, you just won't be able to surpass most of them in everything. And that's just how it goes. So, yeah. Mitch Marner, it's okay. Just do your best, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. This is the, the encouraging dad part of the podcast. Um, yeah, so, you know. Uh, anyway, I think it's interesting. A- and again, if you think that, like, Marner is totally in another stratosphere from Nylander, I think that's overstating the case. Yeah. I don't think that that's I- true. So. They've always been closer than people have, have discussed, I think. Um, yeah. And normally that's with Marner being very far ahead, but I think people might have overcorrected because I, I you know, I don't think, as, I think I'm pretty much as big a William Deander fan as you're going to find on the planet, um, but I don't mm-hmm. think he's as good as Mitch Marner as a hockey player, right? And, and there's no shame in that. Mitch Marner is, is truly, truly a wonderful player. Yeah. All right, cool. So I think that actually does wrap up everything we wanted to talk about this week. Um, so you can find all of mine and Fuleman's work at punishmanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. We'll have uh, more content as, you know, we ramp up towards the start of August and the NHL's return to play. So thank you all for listening, and we will see you in a couple weeks. Bye.